Yo, 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 welcome back. The people on my floor featuring me this week. Um, we have a interesting episode um, in which I am the guest on my own podcast. Um, I have a record coming out. Well, I guess it should be out by the time I post this. Uh, called The Happiest Man on Earth which I recorded last year in Alabama with some really great people, really great players. Um, some of the people in music and I guess in the world that I kind of hold in highest regard. Um, and uh, last November we cut this record and, and now it's out. I'm putting it out myself, which I haven't done in a long, long time, so that's really exciting. But um, I guess the impetus behind this was that in all of our years together, um, my wife Emily and I have never really had a conversation about why it is I do what I do. I mean, we've talked about it. We've, you know, I mean, you can't live with somebody for as long as we've lived beside each other and and not um, kind of have these conversations. But we've never really had a sit-down talk about, you know, why music and playing music and creating music and selling music is um, so inextricable from who I am. So Emily thought it would be neat, and I thought it would be neat to kind of to feature, to do that, to feature me. Um, I have, considering I have this new record coming, and and that's the whole idea behind this podcast is talking to cool people about why why they create the art that they create. Not to say that I'm cool, but anyway. Without further ado, I'll hand over the reins to the amazing Emily Newman, um, soon-to-be mother of my soon-to-be child, and um, she is going to be guiding the podcast from here. The people on my floor featuring your boy Mike V. Enjoy. That's right. Welcome. <clears throat> no, welcome to you. Thank you. <laughs> Where are you coming in from? Uh, the living room. Uh, no, actually, the dining. <laughs> the dining room. All right, let's let's make that the last. I live here, Joe. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Listen, I'm not putting you on blast. I'm 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 putting that out for the both of us because I have a a, um, a saddlebag full of those jokes that I was going to employ, but now that they're being employed, this sounds horrible. All right. Okay, so just to orient us, we're sitting here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It is a week or two before you release your solo album. Yeah, roughly. Right? Uh, when you're not really, when you don't really have a record label and you're really doing this shit yourself like I am or with your loving wife like we are, um, record label, I mean, um, street dates are a very fluid concept. So Only to you. It just kind of comes out. Your whenever. public is waiting. <laughs> well, the, the public will probably get it long before the November 10th street date. <laughs> Got it. Anyway, so so the point is is that we're here in Chapel Hill. You're about to release this album. You had a couple people over um, to practice, but that's not where we're going to start. Okay. Because I was, hope not, considering that was last <laughs> night. <laughs> Great. End of the podcast. <laughs> this is right. fun. This is way fun. <laughs> Almost as fun as running a record label. But no, we're going to back it up. Um, what I decided where we would start, which is when we met, not because this is about me. It is. It's, it's your podcast. But also because when I met you in 
January of 2011 in New York City. You had also a band of just two people. I did. You refused to tell me the name of your band on our first date. I did. Um, uh, not the first date, like our first five dates. Yeah. But then you had a show. So yeah. cat was out of the bag. At um, Brewer, Brewer Falls. Falls. Yeah, in Brooklyn. You said you had stage fright and that I shouldn't talk to you when I get there and just to order you a Jameson. I do. I do. Charming. I do. I do. I still suffer from severe stage fright. But it was just two of you, right? It was you. It was me and, and Steven Chopek. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how the kind of how the Everyman started. I I came from a a band um, that was a great band and, and genuinely one of the bands who I think in in a world where nobody's making new art, everybody's just kind of well. That, that's not true. Where new art is hard to find. Um, I was playing guitar in a band called American Watercolor Movement who were doing something that was so unlike anything else, um, which was great with the finished product, but the process was very, not arduous, because it was one of the most fun bands I've ever been in, but there were like as many as eight or nine people in the band. and um, All at once? Sometimes. Um, and I didn't want to do that after, after, after leaving that band. Um, I just kind of wanted to run my own band and not have to be democratic about anything and not have to um, talk to anybody about what the set list were going to be. I just wanted to say, hey, man, here's what's happening. This is the song. Play it. This is the show. Come show up and play. This is the set list. You know, of course, I was always open to feedback and input, um, but I like to think that you know we were hardly famous, but the Everyman accomplished a lot in our seven or so years together. And I like to think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the band operated that way because, excuse me, um, because, you know, democratic bands just generally take a lot more time. So the Everyman was a direct response. Well, the original Everyman were, but then we grew into a fucking seven-piece band yeah, ourselves. Yeah, thing, life goes in cycles. But it wasn't a democratic band. So to say it was a seven-piece band... That seven-piece band is much different than the other nine-piece band. Or I guess it was It was usually like, I think like it's, I think it was also like a seven-piece band while I was in it. But this, it was called American Watercolor Movement. And it was this band that's kind of existed for a long, long time. People have come and gone, and um, there have been a few constants in it. One is my cousin John, and um, he played bass. And, you know, as far as he's concerned, it's like, it, it wasn't a band. You know, it was an artistic statement or something. Some shit that he would say. It was say. a moment. It was a moment that lasted 15 years. A moment and a moment. And once you're in, you're never out. And that kind of shit. Like, we can't break up if we weren't really a That's band. That's kind of what happened to the Everyman. Um, How so? There's like 15 of you rotating through at all times. Well, I never wanted to be beholden to anyone else. I wanted to say, you know, if somebody asked me to play a show, I wanted to be like, yes, I'm available. And as long as my my my... my my de- deciding, determining factor was always, is there a drummer? And as long as there was a drummer, because we started out as me and a drummer, as long as there was a drummer, the Everyman were going to play a show. So, like, I didn't give a fuck that we didn't have Scott that one night. Even though Scott, I think, beside me, Scott played the most Everyman shows. Um, Scott, our saxophone player. that Scott wasn't going to be there for one show. Or Jamie couldn't make one show. All right, fuck it. Jeff's going to play bass instead of lead guitar. Or maybe we won't have a bass. But as long as I was there and there was a drummer there, we were going to play a show. 
which reminds me of the one night where I didn't book a drummer. Also, what I was thinking. Forgot to book a drummer, and we're and we're. <laughs> it was at Don Pedro's in yeah. Bushwick, and we're about to play, and I'm like, "Where the fuck is Joe Peck?" And Joe Peck's like, "Dude, I'm on tour with some band. I'm in Seattle." Oh, I must have booked Jake, who was our other drummer. I texted Jake. He's like, "Dude, you never asked me to play this show," and I'm like, "Fuck." So that you know, so it's always kind of like you know, we're gonna play a show no matter what, and that was kind of the, the 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 main tenant behind the Everyman was that I didn't want anybody or anything else to hold me back from kind of what I wanted to accomplish. It was a selfish, it was a super selfish band. At the same time, I you know allowed people to do their things. Yeah. Like there were a couple songs where I wrote Catherine's like vocal melody, but for the most part, it was like Catherine, here's the song, come up with words, come up with a melody. You know, Scott, here's the song, play your sax part, you know. And, and you know, on occasion, those guys would come at me and be like, well, what if we do this instead of this? And you know, I'm all ears for that because I trust them as musicians. Cool. But we're still getting ahead of ourselves. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Because so far we've talked about American Watercolor. We've talked about the Everyman, and now you have a solo album. But I want to back it up even further than that. Right? Back it up. Back it up. Um <clears throat> Way before I met you, mm-hmm. when I met you, your music was everything. You worked for a music label. You had more records than anyone I've ever met. You played in, you made music, you played in bands, all that. But I did. I'm going to start this with a really cheesy question. Mm-hmm. What was your first? Let me start it. We're 11 minutes in. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first musical memory? My first. Um, uh, um, watching my dad's band. VTAC. Can you spell VTAC for me? It's a medical term because they were all doctors and hospital workers. So my father is a pulmonologist, and he was in a band with his buddy John Werber, who had a um, a great um, Gibson, a black Gibson. I don't know if it was a black beauty, but it was a beautiful black Les Paul. And he, um, we lived in Mineola on Long Island when my father was in, uh, he was out of medical school, but he was working at Winthrop Hospital. Um, he was in a band called VTAC, and that's the VTAC is when you see the bloop bloop on the heart monitor. Bloop bloop. Uh huh. Um, I might be wrong, but I think that's that's called the VTAC. So they were, you know, they were like a cover band, but they were f- fucking great. They were so good. And, How old were you? Oh, uh, three or four. VTAC used to practice in my in my basement in Mineola, in not my basement, my parents' basement. And I remember going down there, and my, I was sitting on the steps, and my mother was sitting behind me, and I was kind of sitting between her legs. And I don't remember if she was cutting my hair. She wouldn't have, she wouldn't have been cutting my hair because I was on the basement stairs. But I had just she had just cut my hair, I think. And, uh, and I remember VTAC was playing, and my mom was running her fingers through my hair. And I think I was probably like three. Because when we lived in Mineola, I think I was about three years old, maybe four but I don't think I was any older than that. And they played Jump by Van Halen, and that's the only song I remember them playing. They played, oh, they played a uh, ZZ Top song because they had, um, they had these fake beards that they would wear at their shows. <laughs> Even at practice? No, 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 no. <laughs> but the song that I remember them playing most is Jump because their keyboard player, who I think is dead, um, I could be wrong. Good story. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, he, he, you know, he opened up with the uh, intro to Jump. And um, mm. that's 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 my earliest. Okay. And so, did your dad? Your dad's a doctor, but he had records and guitars. He had. Were they strewn about the house? He had. Um, he has a lot of guitars now, but he didn't when I was a kid. He only had one, 
Two, I'm sorry. He had a, he had the uh, black and white Telecaster, which he used to tell me, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes now. He used to tell me that was my guitar. Um, and uh, he had his Gibson Les Paul, which he bequeathed to me um, on the event of the last Everyman record coming out, which is a story we'll tell later, maybe. Um, <clears throat> since then, he's acquired a bunch of guitars. But when we were younger, um, you know, we weren't poor, but we, but we didn't have a lot because my dad was so deeply in debt to his college and to his medical school and to my mother's college um, that he had he had those two guitars. Oh, and he had a Martin acoustic. He had three guitars, and they weren't they were I, you know I don't remember if they were like strewn about the house, but my dad was always playing the guitar, and we had records all over the place. Um, we had tapes and CDs all over the place, and it was um, it was very diverse. You know, my dad is into Jimi Hendrix and Steely Dan, but also like Andrea Bocelli, which not back then, but, you know, um, he loves that stuff. So, you know, he plays in a swing band. Um, he got really into like jazz guitar, but now he's, you know, he, he plays with me and, you know. Um, so, you know, that kind of goes back all the way to when I was a kid. Like, So music was just part of you forever. Yeah. Because your whole family, everyone I've met in your family, there's usually a guitar sitting somewhere either on the couch or near the couch yeah and at some point someone is noodling it sure um, <clears throat> which which is unfortunate well it's cool because i brought out my mom's old guitar which has probably been on our attic for yeah which mike is picking up currently which my mom used to play for her older sister's dates as i guess my aunt was getting ready she does take a bit to get ready sometimes so my mom was entertainment, and Come now downstairs, Suter. I'll play you a song. <laughs> and now the guitar is back out, back in business. But well, that makes me very happy. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't know if I ever told you this. Kind of the impetus behind this podcast is that we've never had this conversation. I think I've told you in passing. In our how long have we been together? Six Eight years. Seven. Seven years. Let's call it seven. In the seven years we've known each other, we've never had like a conversation about why I'm into break making records. But I never knew your mom as she died 10 years ago yesterday. But to be able to kind of play her guitar is yeah. cool. Very For cool. me, every time I For pick it up, too. I kind of think of her. I love that. This person that I've never met. So, yeah. So, um, so yeah. So, my dad would always play guitar. Um, you know, and, and, and I never really had the patience to learn it. Um, and I actually didn't start playing guitar really until I got into high school. Really? Yeah. I played the trumpet when I was a young, young kid. Me too. I know. You've been asking to join my band. It's right for, there. I know. Um, he won't let me. He says it's not cool. <laughs> but I learned how His to... His first chair, not for nothing. <laughs> I learned how to... Uh, I guess that's how I learned how to play music, was playing trumpet in the band. But I never but learned how to read music. Little known fact, you don't know how to read music. I don't know how to read music. I don't know the names of the strings on the guitar. I know the first one and the last one are E's. And then it's... um. E A D B G E, I think. But like you can't read music on a staff. <laughs> no. So what I would do is I would play I, I don't know why I picked trumpet. I think because it only had three buttons, I thought it was the easiest. <laughs> Saxophone was out. Sure. And I would go in and I would pretend I would hold the trumpet to my lips and I would pretend that I was playing the first round through, but I was really listening to Dale Michael Soper, who was the kid next to me. Thank you, Dale. Thanks, Dale. And um and then the second time through, I would play. So it's really your ear. It is. That is continuing to get you through. 
Yeah. Because the my aunt is a very successful and intense piano teacher for young children. And so I told her that you couldn't read music and maybe she could teach you. And she said, absolutely not, because you've got a system and it's working and not to mess with that. So I learned yeah. that lesson. I don't know how well it works, but it works for me. Um, it's definitely hindered me a lot. Like, I can't do a lot of things. Like, people are like, what people say to me, like, yeah, we should jam sometime. I'm like, fuck, dude, I can't. But I, I can't jam. Like, I don't know how to jam because I don't know how to play the guitar. So if somebody's like, dude, let's let's do this boogie in C sharp, I'm like, I don't know what the fuck that means, man. Um, and I can't, I can't just jam. But I think I think people like that so often, like there's the dyslexic writer or the public speaker who stutters. It's like the thing that's the hardest. Well, it's not hard. It's just that I don't know what I'm doing. So you, but know, you know something. Well, sure. I don't know what I'm doing. Well, yeah, <laughs> I'm not but, writing music. Right, but when when so for example, like. When 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 a lot of kids kind of start playing the guitar, they'll they'll pick up the instrument and they'll just start learning how to play songs. And it'll start with something easy, like Smells Like Teen Spirit. And then it'll kind of grow more and more complex. And then they start learning scales. And then they start learning how to do solos and leads and shit. And then, you know, a lot of these guys that I, that I know, you know, like Jamie Zolito, for example, a bass player from The Everyman, who's one of the best musicians I know. I mean, he's... He reads your mind before, you know, you even think he's unbelievable. Um, p- possibly the best musician I know as far as taste, as far as playing. Uh, he's caused me to jump around the room fit, like while we're writing songs more than anybody else. Um, but, like, Jamie spent his whole, when he was a kid, he was just learning how to play songs by other people. But for me, it was always like I had my dad show me a couple of chords and then I just started writing songs. Like, I didn't give a fuck. I didn't want to play like Eddie Van Halen. I didn't want to learn how to play Jimi Hendrix tunes. I just wanted to write songs. Because for me, it was like, you know, those were kind of always the people I looked up to. Because the way I thought of it is like, any jerk off can play a guitar solo. But, you know, and of course, that's not true. I mean, when you hear somebody great play a guitar solo, it's totally different. Like, um, Brandon Clifton, who plays with the Colonel, who we had at the house recently. Um, I think is my favorite guitar player in the world right now. And when you hear him play the guitar, it's, it's artwork. But when you hear guys in fucking wanker fucking cover bands, they're doing bullshit. I had no interest in learning how to do that. And now it's a detriment. There's a lot of stuff I can't do as a musician, and I consider myself a pretty shitty guitar player because of that. But when did you decide, okay, I'm going to make my own music? Right away? Um, yeah. Well, when I started playing guitar. So I played trumpet. And then I started playing drums um, when I got into middle school, which is where I met Jay, uh, who's, you know, throughout my life is one of my dearest friends and also one of my dearest musical friends. Um, I've made a lot of music with that dude. Um, he, and, he and I played drums together because I, I was done with trumpet. I was kind of bored with it. Um, and I thought drums, like, you could sleep in the back during class and stuff. Seriously, we used to, like, we used to um, not sleep. I don't know if Mr. Holman's going to listen to this podcast. I'm but, sorry, Mr. Holman. Um, he was a great he was a great band teacher, and he's a great guy. Um, but you know, uh, so I switched to drums. I started learning how to play the drum set. Um, my, Did you do that by sound too? Well, yeah. How else would you do it? Oh, by like sheet music? Yeah. No, I don't think anybody learns how to fucking play the drums like that. <laughs> Were your friends playing music at this point too? 
Um, Jay was, you know. Um, and there were, you know, there were other kids. I mean, the thing at the time was like hardcore. So like, you know, musicianship wasn't really, I don't know, there wasn't a lot of value placed This is what, 90s? Yeah, so when I was in seventh grade, it was if I graduated, 96, 1996, you know. Um, And I was getting into punk rock and hardcore and stuff like that. And who were the people influencing your musical tastes at the time? Like the musicians or like my friends? Your friends or family or people? Because right now we've listed... You know, your dad and the stuff around. Yeah. But what else? Who else was going on? Uh, John was probably my biggest. My cousin um, was probably my biggest influence. He used to make me tapes. Because a lot of kids my age were getting into, at that time, were getting into, like, Rage Against the Machine, Nirvana, which I was into. I dug Nirvana. Um, Guns and Roses, you know. And he was kind of always, like, this guiding light for me. and was like, fuck that, dude. Because like, he's older. Yeah, he's, um, I don't know. Like a decade older than 10 you. years older than me. Yeah. So he was making me tapes. I was like, you know, Ugh, the art of the mixtape. Sure. And he would draw. He's an artist and he would draw on them and he would make these beautiful things. And I wish I still had them. And I'm sure I do somewhere. But and it was like, well, if you're into Nirvana, listen to the Pixies, because that's what Nirvana was into, you know, or the original Pandora. Right. Right. So, you know, I kind of had this in a way I had this really early education where I was listening to stuff that was way beyond my years. I was listening to like. At like ten years old, I was listening to fucking Dinosaur Junior and Pavement and uh, the Minutemen, and so it was cool because I was I was hip to all this cool shit. But at the same time, I feel like in a lot of ways I missed out on like a proper. By the time I got to college, I was kind of going back to the stuff that I had missed. I was going back to Guns and Roses and Iron Maiden, and um, it was this weird, you know. But he got me kind of on the indie rock tip. Punk rock, I kind of got into myself. Hardcore, I got into myself. Just kids around. What's a hardcore band? Uh, I mean, um, Angry Samoans. Um, you know, um, Government Issue, SSD Control. Um, you know, those kinds of bands I was getting into. And then on the punk side, it was like Operation Ivy, uh, the Minutemen, um, you know, the Sex Pistols. Um, until I realized that those dudes are complete fucking frauds. Um, or, you know, I still think they're complete fucking frauds. Um, you know, the Buzzcocks. Stuff like that, you know, and early Flaming Lips, which I still consider punk rock. You know, the Flaming Lips are one of the most quote-unquote punk rock bands of all time, um, despite the fact that they've been on a major label for since, you know, 30 years. But uh, anyway, so that stuff. You know, and that was kind of, I kind of had that from him. I had the Dino Jr. I had uh, the Pavement, the Pixies, and then from the local scene. Because in, in, on the Jersey Shore, it was a void. Like, there wasn't much going on. Like, there wasn't. Yeah, how'd you find out about new music other than, um, you know, mixtapes from Cousin Johnny? You um, you would read liner notes, um, you know, and you kind of take note of names, and, and, and you would kind of pay attention to who made these records, um, you would look at bands on tour, like, oh shit, L7's opening up for Dinosaur Jr. Let me check out L7. Oh shit, L7's a fucking rad band. Didn't you tell me you and Jay would drive into the forest? Yes. To capture the radio waves of WPRB. Yeah. And one of my greatest um, achievements as a musician was the first time we ever did a session at WPRB because that station was so integral to my kind of development. And we used to write them down, like we used to like have little notebooks and like 
who was that? That was, you know, uh, Liz Fair. Oh, okay, cool. And write down Liz Fair, you know, Exile and Guyville, and then go buy the Liz Fair CD at wherever, Tunes or <clears throat> Pure Platters when we were up in Jersey City visiting John or seeing his band playing at Maxwell's. Um, but that was when I got a little bit older. You know, um, skate videos was a big one for a lot of kids the my music age. music in them? Yeah. Whoa, time. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a lot of kids my age, that was kind of how they got into it because um, skateboarding was such a big thing. Was that a big business then of like, it's like modern day licensing, right? Were they getting paid to be in those or it was um, just like what kids were listening to? No, the way licensing worked today, I'm sure it was not. I, I, I mean, I'm sh- they had to have gotten paid, but they weren't getting paid big bucks, you know, um, but it was cool to be in a skate video because the skater usually chose his own music. So if I'm into Parliament Funkadelic, I'm going to put this, you know, P-Funk song on my skate part. And then some kid in Tuckerton, New Jersey is going to watch it and be like, that song was... And where f- do you watch those VHS rentals? No. Yeah. But, well, no, I, no, I don't know if we ever rented them. We used to buy them. Yeah, we'd buy them at Ron John's surf shop in, in, on Long Beach Island. And I'm trying to think of the other skate shops in town. I, I don't remember any of them. But, but they were... They were- VHS tapes that VHS people produced. Tapes. 411 Video Magazine was the big one. 411 was, I don't know if it was monthly or if it was quarterly. I'm sure it's still out there. But 411 was like a a, a, a video magazine. So um, you had mentioned Pandora before. Yeah. And that's kind of, I mean, just think of Pandora with a little more work. You know, you had to be aware of everything if you wanted to kind of discover new bands. You had to... Take note of, you know, who was touring with whom. Um, take note of the cool venues, you know. You knew, you knew the bands were going to be cool at Maxwell's. Um, and was your dad, like, driving you into Hoboken and Jersey City to see these people, or what? This is still kind of early at this age, so probably not. When, it, when we got later, a little bit, a couple years after, he would. And he would come with us. Um, I, I was really into Weezer. Weezer was, um, for a while, my favorite band on earth um when i was like 16 and uh they made their second record which i still think is one of the greatest records of all time the greatest drum record of all one of the greatest drum records of all time for sure but they kind of disappeared for a while and um rivers the singer went back to school and then they came back and they made the green album which was terrible but it was like oh shit like Weezer's back, you know, and um, they, I think they played at Irving Plaza. I think Irving sold out in like a like a heartbeat. So we got tickets for Lupo's. What's Pro- Lupo's? It's a club in Providence, Rhode Island, which I would later play, which was another one of not a hallmark moment, but it was it was cool. Um, and Lupo's, we yeah. So my dad, me, my dad, Jay, our buddy Matt Doherty, who was playing in bands with us at the time, bass player and guitar player and stuff. Um, my girlfriend at the time, my parents, we all drove up to Providence from Tuckerton, which was like a seven-hour drive. <laughs> and we saw Weezer, and they killed, and we came home. You know, but the big one for my, like, the big one with that, you know, and me and Jay were going to shows and stuff, and a lot of house shows as we got a little bit older, um, VFW shows. It didn't really happen so much on the Jersey Shore um, because it was so cover and still is so cover band oriented if you're making original music in south jersey there's not there wasn't much for you but then as we got a little bit older and john started playing in the in this band plug spark sanjay with joe from rock and roll high fives who we 
interviewed for the podcast, um, we would go up to Maxwell's a lot and see them. And that was another thing where it was like, you know, Pandora in person. It was like, buy the CD from the opening bands, you know, if you dug them. And then when that band would play, we would go up to New Brunswick to see them or we would go to Philly to see them. And then somebody would opening be opening for them. So we would buy that band CD. And that was just, you know, that was just kind of how it worked. But yeah. yeah, my dad was coming. I mean, he was into it. He would take me to like the goofy amphitheater shows like Aerosmith. Yeah. You know. My dad did that. R.E.M. Sure. James Taylor. <laughs> Rolling Stones. Cool. <laughs> James Taylor, whose block we live on now. <laughs> Listen, all the bands you just named, I was listening to Ani DeFranco the whole time. So that's, that's where I come from. That's cool, man. <laughs> so while you're going to see all these shows and taking in all this, information and bands and one band leading to another to another you're also making your own music and how did that start and how are you recording that i wasn't really making my own music at that time because i was kind of afraid to i was making it but not with people i was playing in a cover band in high school yeah were you like writing in a journal were you like recording into a cassette tape like that four track that's over there um the one in the middle not the not the tiac yeah and not the big eight track but that, that little four track in the middle and where'd you get that that's my dad's um he bought it you know and uh he let me use it like everything else <laughs> and uh i was just kind of futzing with little songs playing in this cover band in high school just doing stupid shit just having fun but kind of afraid to write songs or bring songs to people to play with them and then i got into college and uh but you were doing it on your own oh totally yeah totally I probably wrote a hundred songs before yeah, I that's what I'm getting at. showed anybody the first one. And then got into college and did a lot more of that. Was recording in my bathroom. Zach, who you know well, my roommate in college. You went to um, school for the arts uh, and to... first studied cinema before you switched yes, to Villanova. Correct. And I would record in the bathroom and Zach would get all pissed off because he wanted to smoke weed in there and stuff. And um, I was doing my vocals. <laughs> But again, I wasn't really playing. I'm in the studio. Yeah, I was in the studio. But I wasn't really playing in bands. Um, I mean, I was. I was fucking around with certain people. Um, Jay was in a really good band at the time, and I just kind of hung out with them. Like, but I wasn't, I wasn't playing for some reason. I think I was just into partying too much. Um, but writing songs, always writing songs. I have tapes and tapes and tapes of, you know, annals of songs that no one's ever heard. Okay, so now you're in school. You're in Philly. You start at art school. You'll later transfer to Villanova. Taking a lot of drugs. Somehow you find the craziest partying people at both the art school and the preppy school. Yeah, which I think goes back to just being from Tuckerton. But you continue. You continue your musical ventures. Yeah, um, I think really kind of at Villanova, it really kind of, not, not kicked in, but um, it took... Uh, I, I I was playing a lot with my buddy Brett, uh, who you know, um, who's a great writer. The hugger. It's <laughs> great. Uh, he's also a great guitar player, uh, and he and I were kind of in a bunch of different bands together with different people. Um, Which is kind of against the grain for Villanova. There were like a lot of dudes in bands. No, 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 and 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 you know, Brett was really into. I guess you could call them jam bands. Maybe not jam. I don't know what the fuck you call them, but like. Um, um, like Medeski, Martin, and Wood. I guess that's a jam band. I don't know what the fuck they call it, but not my shit at all. And uh, but it was cool because at the, at that time I was getting into like this weird, um, uh, not quite like math rock, but like 
Captain Jazz and like what is math rock? It's a that's a thing. It's a whole. It's a it's another. Just fucking nerds, man. It's all fucking nerds, basically. When you boil down to it, uh, every genre can be described as like it's just fucking nerds. I've learned that to be true. But uh, you know, like but those co- nerds are the cool kids. Totally. Um, a kind of modest mouse at that time really like opened the door to a lot of those bands for me. It was like Karate, um, Q and Not You, uh, um, Captain Jazz. I think I said that already. Um, that kind of stuff, and and so that. Um, Oh, Farrakhet was huge. It was a great Discord band. Um, but that kind of... Me and Brett kind of met on that ground. That was, It was kind of all influenced by jazz, even though I didn't know what the fuck I was... I didn't know a single... I couldn't tell you, other than like John Coltrane, I couldn't name a jazz guy back then. Um, but when you're, when, you're, when you're kind of discovering that shit, it's like, you know, you want to... Whether or not it's authentic or not, you, you want to kind of open your mind and experience something, you know, cool. And for me, it was those bands. And did the Philly scene, did the Philly music scene offer any more than the Jersey Shore scene had for you? Yes, but I was not involved in the Philly scene at all. Philly had a great scene back then. R5 was just getting started. Well, not just getting started, but it was, they were doing a lot of shows at the church. I worked at the Trocadero, which was pretty cool. Also, where I danced. That's right. With Strictly Funk. All right. Not uh, as a stripper. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a rock club. No, it was. Uh, I, I wasn't really involved because, again, like I wasn't playing in cool bands. Like I was just, I wasn't interested in doing anything. And this is like one of my. I only have like one or two regrets in my life, and one is, I just was into partying when I was in college. Like that was all I wanted to do. I didn't want to play in bands. I didn't want to do cool shit. I didn't want to be involved with clubs. I didn't want to study. I just wanted to get fucked up, you know. And I did. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of that came at the fault of, uh, or at the, um, you know, in lieu of playing music. And uh, there were cool bands. I mean, the Teeth were a great band. Kind of came out of Philly then, Dr. Dog. Like, there was cool shit happening. Um, I was just kind of not, not into it, you know, because I was just getting fucked up. But you seem to always sadly. keep your music with you. Like, you have all these friends who are not music heads by any means. In your past, but it's always been a part of your identity. Yeah, but then what the fuck do you talk about? You know, if it's two people who are into the same thing, like, you know, and that was great. I mean, I had a great time when I worked at the record label because it was all people with the same sensibility as me. But at the same time, it was like, you know, you just talk about records, which is cool because I wouldn't rather talk about much anything else. But like at the same time, you want you want people who are kind of into other shit, you know. And Villanova was weird because it was such a, it was a preppy, you know, very conservative Catholic school, you know. Um, yeah. Did you feel more comfortable being the outcast instead of at art school where you were amongst all outcasts? I, I never felt uncomfortable, really. Only in small talk. Only having small talk. <laughs> like this? Life. Yeah, yeah. No, this isn't small talk. I don't feel comfortable. I never feel uncomfortable. I can kind of blend in wherever, you know, which again, I think comes from growing up where I grew up and that it was such a small town and my school was so small that you kind of had to be friends with everybody. Or else you didn't have friends. Yeah. And so just kind of being able to hang out with my football buddies and then go hang out with my music buddies and my skateboard buddies. And, you know, I guess weed and beer was the only thing that kind of unified everybody. I think that's high school in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's a whole different story <laughs> for a whole different time. <laughs> okay, so you graduate, you move to Italy because you're like, why the hell not? Sure. And you think you're staying there for a while. Did you play? I played a little bit with, with my buddy Enrico, who you've met via FaceTime, who's one of the. Um, the biggest hearts I've ever met. He, there's a there's a there's a place in my heart that's reserved for Enrico, 
and nobody else is allowed to go there. And uh, he and I, you know, he and I played together, but nothing. We didn't play shows or anything. He was in he was in a very successful band called AB4, um, very successful Romanian band. Didn't he win a European MTV Music Award? Yeah, <laughs> That's and I didn't. Cool. Yeah, he was my English student, and uh, anyway, um, so I played with him, like jammed with him one or two nights. Bought a guitar at like their version of Borders that I gave that I gave to him when I left um, to move back home. And uh, what did he say? He emailed me recently. He's his his English is very remedial. It's the best thing about him. And he's accidentally very poetic. And he yeah, said, uh, the way he translates, it just it's like it's like honey. He said, "Your guitar is here, waiting for your soon return." <laughs> he says things like like. I miss your smile, sweet brother. And he's really just saying, like, talk to you soon. <laughs> but the way that he translates, it's like. <laughs> so, yeah. So we, we yeah, we jammed poetry. a couple times. Yeah. And, um, and then I came home. And then I came home and I was kind of taking care of my mom, which was the reason I came home from Italy. And uh, didn't, I mean, I didn't play with anybody then. Because um, she got sick. Yeah. And you came home. That's why I came home. Right. I wasn't, I wasn't intended to come home anytime soon but she got sick and I kind of had to do like a next flight home situation um, came home was her nurse quote unquote for a while live in nurse I guess um, for a couple of months while she went through her first rounds of chemotherapy and then moved to Jersey City and got in with the watercolor band so when um now mind you like there were there were like a hundred like quote unquote bands in between yeah like but like nothing like we do a show, you know. When I was in college, the most serious band was me, Brett, Jay, and my buddy John Paul, and we played like you know twenty shows, and we were you know, it was like an indie rock band. But like there were hundreds of other quote unquote bands, yeah, guys that would get together, play one show, two shows, three shows, and kind of that was it. And when you when you were first dealing with your mom's illness and you were home, did was music a part of that? Like not real. Um, no, because uh, it's inspired. Like she, in general, inspires a lot of your music. But her illness and that whole situation inspired really. lots. But did it leave you for a time? No, um, not really. My senior year of college, I met a girl who kind of like influenced a lot of stuff. Who you know, as you know. Um, this is nothing new. I'm not dropping a bombshell here. <laughs> um, and that kind of carried over in those years. Um, and I was writing a lot of songs. Um, kind of not all based around that, but still into the four track thing. At that time, it was pro- by that time it was like probably the early iterations of I don't know, maybe Garage Band, maybe you're burning CDs of your songs. I was burning CDs, um, but again, still not really in any bands that were serious. Still just kind of writing songs, you know whenever I could. And yeah, I was writing songs. I mean, my dad at that time had a bunch of guitars and a whole little recording set up in his basement. And, you know, my mom would sleep most of the day. So I was either just like watching movies, cleaning the house or, you know, making, excuse me, making demos Hmm. or making songs, I guess. They're not demos. And when did you move back to Jersey City and then into New York? I moved to Jersey City. Yeah. Yeah. And then moved into Brooklyn. Um, Lived in Jersey City for a while. And um, got in with the 58 Coles crowd, I guess you could say. What is that? It was an art gallery. It was a great art gallery. Um, in Jersey City. Uh-huh. Uh, again, my entree to that was my cousin John. And um, 
Started playing with the watercolor band. And, uh, it's a DIY venue, right? No, it was a proper art gallery. Oh. Um, oh, art gallery. No, it wasn't a venue. I mean, they would have shows in the back that were very much of the DIY ilk. Um, and then moved to Brooklyn. And then, st- and then in Brooklyn, started playing in like a fuckload of bands. And that was like the first time you were like truly in performing. No, 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 no. I've been performing in bands my whole life. Not my whole life, but since high school. But that was the first time where it was like, maybe one of these bands might get signed. You know, you like, were drumming? I was doing a lot of things. One band I played drums. It's funny you mentioned that because I was just listening to a live show from this band Pow Wow, who I played uh, drums in. Um, I was making a playlist for our flight to L.A., and I came across this live show. We were, we're going to L.A. on Friday. At Shea Stadium, actually. We played the first, I believe it was the first show at Shea Stadium. Not where the Mets In Brooklyn. Play. In Brooklyn. And um, no, I was, so I was playing. Is that t- still there? Yeah, as far as I know. I was playing in tons of bands at the time. I was playing guitar in a couple bands. I was playing bass in a couple bands. I was playing drums in a couple bands. And that was a thing where it was like Brooklyn was like this thing. You know, it, it had become this thing over the previous decade. And um, it was kind of right before Brooklyn, Brooklyn like, like really, really blew up. So there was still a lot of cool shit happening kind of on the underground tip. What were the big bands that would later be big that were? Um, no, they were all probably already big. I mean, bands that kind of... Like who? Well, like the first kind of... I guess the first wave of it was like Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and like Liars and those kinds of bands. Um, you know, TV on the radio. But then we were... I don't, I, I don't even remember, man. Vampire Weekend, I guess. Um, I think we did a show with them. Way back in the day. Um, oh, God. Um, oh, what the fuck is the name of that band? The OCs, who weren't from Brooklyn, but used to play there all the time. We used to play with them. Uh, they were from the West Coast. Um, so then you're in it. Yeah, more or less. Um, I was never a, like a cool kid, though. Like I never really had interest in hanging out with people. I just kind of wanted to play shows and party and go home. But then um, I got this internship at Matador. How the heck did you do that? I emailed them. There was a girl named Jay who worked at Front Desk. And I emailed Jay my resume. And I was like, you know, I'm a 26-year-old. Because at that point, I graduated from college. I transferred, so I lost a year. So I graduated. I was a bit older than when I graduated than everybody, than your average. You know, I think I was like 23 when I graduated. 20, maybe even, no, I wasn't 24. I was probably 23. It took me five years to graduate, so yeah. So then um, I went to Italy for a while, and then I came home and took care of my mom for a while. So by the time I got this internship, I was like 26. <laughs> and a lot of my friends that are like, were like well into their careers at 20. Not well into their careers, but into their careers at 26, and I'm like taking a fucking unterm, uh, unpaid internship. And um, But that's how you pitched it? You said, here's my resume. I will work for free. No, no, it was an unpaid internship. I said, "Here's my resume. Like, call me. Like, I want to." Did you see it listed somewhere? Like, no, how, no, how yeah, do you it was do on that? The, it was on their website. It was like we, you know, if got you go, it. if you go now, like if you go to like Merge or like Sub Pop or whatever, it's like we offer unpaid. Got internship. it. Got yeah. it. So I was like, "Fuck it," you know. I I love records. Dream and, job. Um. Yeah. I mean, Matador is probably my my all time favorite record label, and it was you know for most of my much of my life. I mean, Guided by Voices is still one of my top three or four favorite bands of all time. Uh, Pavement, who I've mentioned a dozen times. Um, Railroad Jerk, who we got the posters on the wall. Uh, I'm trying to think, who else? I mean, 
you know, Cat Power, Liz Fair, um, you know, and then at that time it was like Interpol. Like, shit, man, this is Yola Tango. Um, uh, even like early Super Chunk, you know, before Merge existed, they were a Matador band. And so, um, yeah, so I got this internship and I worked for nine months. I worked at the at the bakery five days a week and I worked at Matador two days a week. And in nine months, I had two days off. It was the craziest, like, craziest shit ever. And then finally, um, this girl left to go, I think, to nursing school. And I had to go through a round of interviews to take her job. And I, and I got her job. And the rest is very drunk in history, as they say. <laughs> um, and that was, I don't even know what year, 2009, maybe. So I graduated college in 2006. So there was three years of like, and it was the recession. So like, it was like, I was waiting tables here and yeah. there. I was working at bars here and there. Like there wasn't work. There wasn't real work. Not that waiting tables isn't real work. It's very real work. And I hate when people say that. I apologize. But there wasn't career work. And this was what I wanted to do. Um, if, it wasn't, if I wasn't playing the guitar, if I couldn't figure out, and I was still doing that. And there were, I was playing in bands and there were like, scouts coming out to shows because it was Brooklyn in 2009. Yeah. You know, there was, uh, you know, so there were like people from A&R guys coming to see the bands play when we were opening for, uh, I don't even know. So you were in Pow Wow at that time and what else? I was in a band for a short-lived period of time which I just played you the demos recently called the Fucking Sherpas which was, to this day, I think one of the best bands ever. Um, and there was, uh, God, I don't even know. I don't even know. Like there were, there's a, dozen or more bands whose names I forget or who never had names. Um, but Pow Wow was probably the big one. The fucking Sherpas were the big one. Um, and then American Watercolor? Yeah, sorry. I had to pee again. Um, one of the things I love about you most is you have just as small a bladder as I do. Smaller. Possibly much smaller. smaller. Um, yeah, I don't know when the Watercolor band was in there. It was in there somewhere. I think it was... I, it definitely started when I was in Jersey City. So basically your life is playing in bands, going to see other bands, and listening to music. And buying records. Buying um, records. Yeah, and then I got this job at Matador, and here I was. I was like this cocky kid. I mean, I wasn't cocky, but I was like, I know music. And then I get a desk next to fucking Dave Martin, you know, who was like, um, who I, I have to apologize if you're listening, Dave. I, I don't know why we didn't do a podcast when you were here next time you come through. Gotta come back. Um Dave, who in a lot of ways became one of my mentors, I guess, in the record business and in music. I mean, he introduced like, and uh, you know, he turned me on to so much shit that I just that I just didn't even know existed. You know, um, the biggest one being Raining Sound, uh, who have since become one of my favorite bands ever, and was kind of one of the one of the reasons I started writing Everyman songs because I was I just wanted to write songs like Greg Cartwright which I never did because that guy's one of the greatest songwriters. Um, new Pornographers are a band I forgot to mention before when rattling off. I mean, another one of the Hallmark Matador bands. Um, so Dave kind of turned me on all this shit, you know, and I was lucky enough because at the office at Matador and Beggars, uh, which is the parent company, um, we had just stereos everywhere and kind of everybody, there was like the one overhead stereo and then a lot of people were listening on their headphones. And then, like, the office, the conference room had a stereo. And then the Matador office had a stereo. And everybody was, it was this cacophony, and it was crazy. Um, but then I was lucky enough that Dave's speakers were right in front of my desk, and his shit was just drowning it out all the time. And, and you know, his taste is, is pretty impeccable. 
and uh, he just he just turned me on to so much shit. So I'm, I was lucky to kind of to have him in my life, you know, as a friend now. Um, but at the time, just as this this guy who kind of just turned me on to so much shit and made me realize, like, oh, I don't know shit. <laughs> like, I'm basic as fuck, you know? That's how I felt when I met you. I said, I know about the roots. <laughs> I saw them in Philly in college. Side note, when we met, I made Emily a mixed CD of Guided by Voices songs. I met him on a corner. He handed me the mixed C- CD and immediately ran into a chair yeah, and <laughs> came I, crashing down. I uh, I thought the quickest way into her pants was via the most dude band of all time. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. Um, so, that you know, that kind of led me into that and and um, yeah, then I left the watercolor band. Um, I think I just had a lot more ambition than, um, and I don't mean this as a dig. Um, like those guys are artists in the most um, pure sense of the word. In that, like, they make art because they have to make art. You know, they have no am. Well, not no. Who ambition. would you compare them to that a wide audience might know? I don't know. You know, I guess. I hate to say it because I fucking hate the Arcade Fire, but like the Arcade Fire in that like there was just a lot of, there was so much going on on stage. There was this kinetic energy. With you guys the, were in like costumes and you marched. Not really. Yeah, sometimes there were costumes. And there were, it was very theatrical. Were like nine minutes long, yeah. And there were sing-along parts and there was this communal, this sense of community. Cold um, following. I mean, whatever. But, um, but, you know, I think I had a lot more ambition. Like, like those guys would intentionally try and kind of fuck with the crowd. It's like, we're not going to play any of, like, the jams tonight. We're going to do a 40-minute noise set. Yeah. Like, and I'm like, dude, guys, this is a big show. What the fuck are we, like, we got to play the hits, you know? And, and they weren't into that, you know? And, and, and me, at the time, I was, like, 26 years old, and I didn't fucking know any better. And I still don't know any better. I still, you'd still play the hits, you know? And I just, it was just a different sensibility. You know, they were making this one kind of art, whereas I just kind of wanted to make this other kind but of art. But the Everman might not have birthed had yeah. that not been part of totally the thing. So I think the Everman were kind of a, the love child of like my new obsession with Greg Cartwright's songwriting and my want to be in a band that was just fucking pop songs. Not make crazy thirteen minute. What work. makes Greg Cartwright songs so good? I'm not gonna answer that question. No, but like, <laughs> is it because they're short and catchy, or no, they're, just, they're genius lyrics, or what? Uh, For someone who doesn't know, uh, uh, just listen to them. I don't know what to tell you. Like, they're just they're perfect. I mean, they're just they're songs that sound like you've heard a million times before, you know. But they're not. They're new and they're fresh, and the lyrics are beautiful and. Um, you know, he's just he's just a brilliant songwriter. I mean, he's the kind of guy that can play the song that you've heard a million times before, but make it his. You know, everybody's done the the fucking Phil Spector beat, but when he does it, it sounds like a fucking raining sound beat. It's not a Phil Spector beat; it's a Greg Cartwright beat. That answers my question. Thank you. Not really, but if for you it does, then I'm happy. Um, so that's kind of what the Everman were born from was like this want to be in, in you know, just. A more simple place, and and this ambition that like I'm gonna go out and make a bunch of records. You know, I don't care if we sell them. Much to your chagrin, now that we're selling records together, um, you know, I just want to make records, and I want to make a lot of records because I'm writing a lot of songs. So, what was the very first Everyman song? Oh God, um, it was 
it was uh, probably on the first seven inch. So probably like telephone or with the boys. Telephone, we stopped playing, I think, before I met you. We False. Didn't? False. Okay. Um, with the boys. Probably with the boys. I remember writing that song. It must have been after I left Jersey City. Because I remember writing that on my apartment, in my apartment on Taffy Place in Clinton Hill, Bedford-Stuyvesant. So I was right there by the Classen Avenue G train. And uh, I was in the bathroom, and we had like this, du- this crazy duplex. Um, and I, I wrote the song in the bathroom, and then I recorded it. I got stuck in a snowstorm at my parents' house, and I recorded um, the whole. I, I just did these demos on my dad's like recording rig. In Long Island? No, they were still living in South Jersey at the time. And uh, just blast. I, my timeline could be all fucked up, but I just, they, everything sounded crazy in the red, and I didn't really care. I didn't take any time to mix it. I just kind of recorded everything. And, and then I was like, oh, you know, this, this sounds really cool. And so I think I borrowed like 500 bucks from my dad. I pressed up. I had a, uh, you know, I think I had like a thousand bucks saved or something like that. And I pressed up like 507 inches and just gave them out to friends and sold some. And I still have a bunch. What was that called? That was Rotacoma Pollution. That was the first EP. Um, And then what came next? um, Hello, Nice Evening, the second EP. Hello, Nice Evening. So it was Sarah McHugh, it was you and drums. Correct. And then Hello, Nice Evening, we kind of started getting, like, Jeff played bass. Then we got Scott, I think. I think it was Jeff, Scott, Catherine, and then Jamie. So Jeff saw me with Steve Chopek and was like, if you guys want a bass player, like, I love these songs. Came on to play bass. Um, And then Scott came on to play saxophone. And somebody, I think John Feskin, John, my cousin, was like, you know, you know, Scott's brother is like a ridiculous bass player. And so I, I think I asked Scott. I could be telling this story wrong. And Scott was like, oh, yeah, totally. No, he's really good. You want to ask him to come jam? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, dude. Like, what the fuck? So, and then Catherine, you know, the karaoke thing. No, I, saw, I don't. I mean, I do, but. I saw her singing karaoke, and I insisted she join my band. Well, and she said, I'm not just going to be a fucking ooh-ah girl. Meant, meaning, like, I have to write songs for her, which I did. Wrote a lot of songs for her. Did you have any idea she could sing? You worked with her. No, have you ever met her? She doesn't talk. <laughs> yes, I've met her. <laughs> and then she fucking sings, and then you're like, holy Christ. And she's also like four feet tall. She is, and she's kind of got this, um, uh, she's got a classic rock and roll, Linda Ronstadt kind of voice. Like, she's just amazing. And I was like, hey, man, like, can you come sing some of my songs? Because I can't sing. You know, my down my downfall is always that I'm not a very good musician and I'm not a very good singer. So I kind of... And yet, you're the catalyst for all this. Well, I surround myself with people who can do. So going back to who we talked about before, Eric and Taylor, who are playing on the new... Not the new album, but, you know, like I, I want to be the worst guy in the band. I want to be the worst football player on the field because that means you're on a pretty good team. Because I'm a pretty good guitar player. Uh, you know, I'm a, a pretty okay singer. And I think I'm a pretty decent songwriter. So if I'm the worst one, then that's got to be a pretty okay band. So we could do an entire podcast on the Everyman, but we're not going to. Fuck that band. (laughs) Um, But how did the experience of creating that band, touring as much as you guys did, leaving Matador to focus on music full-time, impact this current album? It didn't. I mean, I don't have a job. That's basically what it boils down to. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't know if it did. I don't know if any of that has any connection. It's just but songs. but in some ways the um, like like the like, Everyman was a response to the American Watercolor. Right. This record's not a response to anything. No. No. Oh. It's just I kind of got you know what it came from. It kind of I'm so fucking sick of indie rock. I fucking hate indie rock. Um, now, <laughs> and um, you know Ben just kind of reignited that. And not not Ben. Ben as an idea, and I'm sure Ben would love the fact that he's being touted as an idea. What's <laughs> up, Ben? Uh, but you know he, um, those guys, not just Ben, but Dylan. And what is it that all that? What it's is just that? a more organic, more classic. You know, like, hey man, like, remember Otis Redding? Remember how great fucking Steve Cropper is? Remember, you know, Spooner Oldham and. And you know Wilson Pickett and and all of these songs that you loved when you were a kid and Jackie Wilson and and like that shit's still really cool, <laughs> you know and and uh, and I just kind of got so burnt out on the whole indie rock thing and and that was kind of the direction I went, you know, um, and those guys weren't the catalyst of it, but they were kind of they always have had that mindset. It's just a more organic thing and there's less pretense and it's just a lot less cool. And I mean that as a you know. As a positive, I don't know. But I've always seen you always you go in um, phases like you you spiral into the, uh, different themed, whether it's music, mostly music, or fashion, like anything. You just like once you're curious about a topic or you want to live in it for a little bit, you're like crazy watching like oh you went recently you went through elvis well i've always been in an elvis phase rabbit hole yeah yeah you always were but you yeah it's a rabbit (laughs) hole not a downward spiral that's the wrong way to say it but yeah you rabbit hole and all of a sudden there's like we gotta listen to like 25 elvis records and there's like youtube videos and wikipedia pages and books and like i think it's very cool because you're curious or you're like you want to be in a specific space and then there's like endless information about that and i think it tends to come out in some of your songs. So you're saying I write like Elvis songs. <laughs> or whatever, because sometimes it's Elvis, sometimes it's Otis, sometimes it's uh, hardcore. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. I mean, there are definitely hardcore influences on the last Everyman album, more so than any other, for sure. Yeah. Um, but I think people who only knew you through the Everyman were like, oh, Mike, rock and roll. Yeah, and that was kind of but my... But there's a lot more. Yeah, The Everman was kind of my calling card. Like, to date, artistically, that's been my hallmark, I guess. You know, it's the band that's done the most. It's We've sold thousands of records, and we played thousands, not thousands, but you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows. Um, we toured all around the country, and, you know, we did big stuff. We were on TV, and, you know, we played at the 930 Club, like, that kind of shit. So, like, of course, that's going to be, like, the calling card, which people know me. Um that's which like, is why I think when they listen to the new record, there's some really surprising stuff, which maybe is probably more similar to the burn CDs you were making of your music in high school yeah. than anything. Sure. Pussy, Softer side. Pussy stuff. Of Mike V. Sure. Yeah. I'm getting older. I'm having a kid. You know? I mean, yeah. Yeah. What else you got? You want to talk about the new record? I mean, I've been trying to. I've been trying to segue back into it. Well, segue into it. I'm going to cut this stuff. <laughs> we'll fix it in post. Tell me about the new record. Well, you disappeared into Muscle Shoals for... <laughs> disappeared. A couple weeks. I texted you 500 times a day. No, but but um, 
you've said it before, but when you write songs, you're either writing a shit ton of songs or you're writing absolutely nothing. Yeah, my my. And I saw it once in our apartment on Delancey. Really? And I saw it once here, I guess. The Delancey. Or no, it was in our um. You were recording in in our townhouse in Carborough in the bathroom. Yeah, so I have um the way my and I hate when people talk about their process. It's the fucking worst, but my process is um <laughs> I don't I can't just sit down and write a song. If you give me a guitar and you're like write a tune, I can't. I'll often go like a year or more without writing a single song and then the faucet'll just turn on. And I don't know how long it's going to turn on for, so I just kind of have to I have to give myself over to the faucet. Yeah, there's there's a standing rule that I've learned very early with Mike. Like if he's holding a guitar and he's playing, he can't hear you. It's not that I want to hear you. On. I'm not he's trying to be not, a dick. He's not there. And so when he's writing songs and the faucet's on, that is an extended period of time. Yeah, and sometimes it'll be one song. Sometimes it'll be two songs. Sometimes it's been 50 songs. Like, And then the faucet goes off. And there's nothing that could bring it on. There's nothing that could turn it on. Because it's weird because as a writer of stories and words and you know a manuscript that i've written like i feel like writer's block is is for fucking pussies like writer's block is a bullshit excuse that you just don't are afraid to get to work like just fucking sack up and start writing but when it comes to songwriting i feel very much but it's not writer's block that's the thing it's like i just it just doesn't exist. Like It's not there. It's not there. It's not writer's block because I'm not trying to sit. If you gave me a guitar, I've written a thousand songs in my life. If you gave me a guitar and said, sit down and write a song, I could fucking write a song. It's not, but it's just that like the, I don't know. It's just those not, songs, those songs, which whether or not they're any good, I don't know. You know, who, who knows? I mean, according to record sales, they're not fucking good, you know, or the fact that I'm still playing for three people. But, I just kind of have to give myself over to the faucet when it opens and just kind of let it let it go and whenever it comes it comes and there have been times in my life when I've been where I've been fucking terrified that it's not coming back ever ever like the sub the faucet is closed dude that the water's off you didn't pay the bill and uh it's scary but then it comes back and so you um had one of those faucet periods yeah prior to muscle shoals yeah. And then you sent them down to Ben, who started to accumulate musicians to record with you? Mm-hmm. Or how did that work? Yeah, yeah, so I told Ben I want to make a record with him. Uh, we've always wanted to work together. Um, and um, we did the last Everyman record. And I just had such a great time working with him. And he's such a, uh, you know, he's, he's a good guy to be in a studio with. Um, he knows his way around a studio. He's got great taste in music. And that's kind of all you need. You know, but that whole um, atmosphere, town, crew of people—I mean, no, that does. I think that's bullshit. Hmm. You know, it's it's got nothing to do with the town. It's got to do with the people. Yeah, um, that's what I mean. The people. Yeah, but there's no like mysterious X factor. No, it's, no, it's not like you go and like wash yourself. No, it's like I I, I know Ben river. and I trust Ben that he entrusts these people, and sure enough, like. They were some of the best musicians the community. I've ever played with, you know, for a variety of reasons. Because you just went down there by yourself. You didn't know. No, I didn't know them at all. I'd sent, well, of course, that's not true. I knew Caleb, who played cello. I knew Kimmy. But it's not like you had a band down there. I knew Jonathan. No, not at all. So I sent them the demos. They familiarized themselves with the music, and we cut the whole record live. It's crazy. Um, the biggest kind of X factors were Joe 
Garner, the colonel who played bass, who I had here on the podcast, and Gibb, who played drums. I never met those dudes. The way Cypress Moon, or the way Portside Sound is where we recorded the record, is that there's three isolation booths. And in each isolation isolation booth, there's windows. So you can see all the other isolation booths. So I'm in there, and then Gibb is in the iso booth next to me with his drums, and Joe is in the farthest isolation booth. And like I've never fucking met these guys. Well, that's not true. I met Joe the Colonel in passing once at a 116 show in, in Florence, Alabama. Um, I never met these fucking guys. And like here I am. How do you entrust your music to strangers like that? I mean, you just tr- there's like some ma- like magical musician thing. Like even the two guys who came here the first time they came, like you'd never all been in a room together. They come over and all of a sudden you're all playing the same song. But that's the thing. It's not magic. It's it's quite the opposite. It's very much mathematic, and it's mathematic, mathematical, mathematical. Um, it's 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 you know there's a roadmap for it. Like here's the song, just play it. It's not some sort of yeah, but it's just to play, I, it, to play it well is depends on how good of a musician you are. I couldn't do that because I'm not a very good musician. That's why I write the songs because I couldn't come to somebody's house and be like, play that uh, C minor into G sharp flat. <laughs> I'm like, I don't fucking know what that means, <laughs> you know. Um, but it isn't. It's not magic. It's 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 quite the opposite. But but then again, to have the feel, and I think when you listen to the way Gibb plays the drums, because he doesn't play very straightforward on this record, and I don't think I've seen him play with other people. He doesn't very play very straightforward at all. He's got very much his own style, and um, you listen to his drums, and it's like that that shouldn't you shouldn't be doing that. So were you hearing that all for the first time when you were recording it? Like, yeah. holy shit, this sounds cool. No, I didn't think it sounded cool at first. I didn't think it sounded not cool. It was just like, I just kind of gave myself over to it. I'm like, this is, you know, let's. this is going to sound like it's going to sound. Because we only have six days to record because I'm paying for this myself. <laughs> um. So, no, and then when I heard it, it was like, Joe, the bass stuff that he was playing... You know, give the drums he was, and Jonathan. I mean, we were talking. Me and Taylor were talking about it last night. I know this is getting confusing with all the names, but Taylor, who's playing these parts live, we were talking about this one E chord that Jonathan Oliphant played on the piano, and it's like it's not really supposed to work, but it works. You know, because you, know? you go in there and you say, "Here's this demo," and then you say, "Like, put your own thing into it." Or yeah, and there are other musicians who don't work that way. There yeah. are other musicians. But who you say, told them you wanted that. That's always what I want because I'm not a piano player. What the fuck am I doing telling Jonathan what to play? You know, and I also speak in kind of when we make records, I speak in very esoteric, nebulous terms, you know, like make it sound like we're lost at sunset in (laughs) fucking Guadalajara. And some people look at me and they're like, what the fuck are you talking (laughs) about? What chord? Exactly. And then other people (laughs) are like, oh, yeah, totally. I got that. And uh, these guys are very much like that. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, cool, I got that. You know? Yes, go on, Yeah, it's like, you know, when we were doing the, um, the song Nothing Good Happens After Midnight, it was like, yeah, dude, this is like last call. There's one cigarette left in the pack, and the girl you were trying to fuck all night left without you. Play it like that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, all right. Oh, got it. Right. And I think, as far as I'm concerned, good musicians will get that kind of language. Any musician can get C, G, A, or whatever. Emotion. Not not emotion, but kind of how to paint that picture. Yeah. 
Um, and that's kind of how I, you know, but it was, it was very much like, I don't know these guys. So what kind of emotion went into writing this stuff, but what kind of emotion do you think like came out on the other side? I don't know what kind of emotion went into writing it. I don't know. The songs are mostly about you. So it's happy emotions. Same kind of emotions that go into any songs. Happiness, sadness, loss, death, mom. My songs, half of this record is about my mom. The other half's about you, you know, and it's kind of that weird balance, which was, very much a real-time instance, you know? It's like I was meeting you as I was... My mom was dying. It was like, oh, you know, here's this worst thing that's ever happened to me next to the best thing that's ever... And I didn't have time to compartmentalize it, you know? I didn't have time either to, like... Yeah, because you didn't write those songs then, obviously. No, no. And you I wrote them recently. And some of them are older. You know, some of them I wrote when my mom first got sick, but I didn't have time to put you aside or to put her aside. It was like... Because I don't believe that shit. I don't fucking believe that. When I used to be dating before I met you, it was like, I just don't have time. No, you're just not into me. If you were into me, you'd fucking have time. You know? I don't buy that shit. Like, my mother's dying, but here's this girl that I dig. I'm not going to fucking say goodbye to this girl that I dig because my mother's dying. And my mother's not going to stop dying because there's this girl that I dig. So these two things have to fucking coexist. Otherwise, my life is going to be fucked. Not fucked, but... I might be missing out on this chance to, you know, have this woman who's going to have my fucking kid someday, maybe, potentially. Back then it was potential, now it's absolute. <laughs> He's coming. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so a lot of the record is that. You know, it's the loss of mom. It's watching her die. It's the visceral reaction of, like, her fucking dying. And then the visceral reaction of, like, oh, like, this chick, like, that, I'm, that totally kind of turned my life around, upside down. Well, I didn't realize at the time because my life was so fucked up because my mom was dying. <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, I've had a couple of other great loves in my life as far as women go. And like, but like here is like, oh, like this is the real one. This is the one where it's like, I don't, it doesn't come with all the bullshit the other loves came with. But then the other bullshit was taken, my mother was taken that role, you know. Not that it was bullshit, but anyway. But what's the song that I say is the happiest, saddest song there ever was? Oh, Susie. Yeah. It is. It's the um, first song on the album, right? It's the third track, second oh, song. Third. Second song, but the third track. But yeah, because it's got this crazy like do, 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 do beat and you're like toe tapping and you're driving along and your windows are down. And then if you listen to the words, it's like heartbreaking. Well, yeah. I mean, that's fucking life, man. Like. Just because I'm my mom's dead doesn't mean I don't have to get up and go to work today. You know, like uh, there's a there's a when I was on the subway and I was looking around, and, you know, and there's this part that I wrote in the in the book that I wrote, the manuscript that I wrote, um, is like talking about being on the subway and like that. I, after my mom died, I went to therapy for a minute, and I realized like this is <laughs> this is a waste of fucking money for me. For a lot of people, it works, and I and I appreciate it and I see the value in it, but for me, it was just a fucking waste of time. And I sat on the subway and I looked around and I was thinking like, oh, like that guy's mom is dead or that woman's brother is dead or that guy just lost his son or, you know, hypothetically or theoretically, I guess. Yeah, everybody's got whatever that thing is. And that made me feel better than any fucking therapist ever could, you know, that I wasn't alone in fucking death. So, um, yeah, you know, life goes on. Life goes on, man. You got to fucking, you're allowed to be happy while you're sad, I guess, is the kind of whole, the whole theme of you're the You're lucky record. you're both. Right, right. 
I was fucking devastated, man. It was the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life. At the same time, the best thing that ever happened. So that's the new album. <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> Got it. You know, it's all there's also about a lot about New York, you know, a mm-hmm. lot about coming to terms with this place that I loved so much as a kid and that I kind of always imagined myself growing up in and growing old in and being a, a New York City guy, which I was for a decade, is just not a place for me anymore. And coming to that realization, like, this isn't for me. This place is not for me. And it's not for people like me anymore. And that's sad. You know, that sucks because for God knows how long, you know, that place was for me and people like me. But now it's not. And not that this place is, not that Chapel Hill is. Um, but, you know, that uh, the record has a lot of that undertone too. So, yeah, that's it. That's the story of Mike V in a nutshell. Any more questions? I think that's it. I'm proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm proud of me, too, and I'm proud of us. And I, uh, I'm i proud of the record label owner that you're becoming. Thanks. I also don't give a shit if people buy it or don't. I just think the fact that you created it well, is you what's know, important and the process behind it. And this is the last thing I'll say because um, I, I want to catch up on the TiVo Jeopardy. <laughs> that we Exciting <laughs> Tuesday night. Uh, you know, you make something, uh, and, and it's not the reason you make records, but, you know, it's, 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 I think it's the impetus for a lot of artists is that, you know, you make something because you have to make something. But then once you make it, it kind of exists. Forever. Right? You know, it exists forever. And I know you've heard me making records, and you lived with me while I've made at least four full-length records. Um, and God knows how many EPs and tapes and singles. But you hear it, and as I listen, like when I make records, all I listen to is my own record. And then the minute it's done, I'll never listen to it again. <laughs> because it's done. It's out in the world. It's like when a shark has a baby, the, sh- the baby goes and swims, you know, and it goes away. And it's like, you know, you're on your own now. Like that's, you belong to the to the sea. Kind of like, this is like, this record is not mine anymore, which I think is the coolest thing that could ever happen. Like, I don't, the book that I wrote, I'm I'm still tweaking it. I tweak it every day. I look at it and I tweak it every day. And if God willing, someday it should be published, then it won't belong to me anymore. It'll belong to the world. And if 10 people read it, it still belongs to the world. And the coolest thing for me is that, like, it theoretically lives forever. Theoretically. Who knows yeah. how, how long it'll be around. But, you know, it'll be something that when I'm dead, our our kid can show his kids. Like, hey, this is your grandpa, you know, or his great-grandkids. Like, you know, and, and that's not why I do it, but it's just a cool byproduct. Yeah. <laughs> and now we live in a house in a place where I'm going to sit with our kid on the basement steps while you practice. Unless you finally let me in the band with my trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> and then the kid can sit by himself. On that note, I think that's a perfect place to end this talk. Yeah, but we got to do the seven random questions first. Okay. Hit me. That's how we always end, right? That is. Yep. Okay, ready? No. Okay, now I'm ready. Okay, one. Favorite childhood animal? Um, Don't think about it too hard. Probably a horse. horse? I, um, yeah, my first job was uh, shoveling shit in exchange for horse riding lessons. And your uncle bought your cousin a mini horse? No, a horse. I don't know. If he bought her a horse. 
that lived in the backyard in Jersey City. Okay. <laughs> Number two. All right, peanut butter and jelly. Which do you put on the bread first? Oh, that's a good one. Oh, peanut butter. That was a good one. That's, <laughs> a good, that's a good random question. Yeah, peanut butter. The correct answer is peanut butter on both sides and then the jelly, but we'll move on. Number three, other than your crazy last name, who's the person you know with the craziest, even crazier name than your name? Femi. What's his name? Uh, his full name is Olufemi Ako Akimiasani. <laughs> that wins. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Number four, first movie you ever saw in a theater. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, the first one I remember seeing was Rising Sun with Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes. What year did that come out? Uh, Wikipedia later. Uh, okay. No, no, fuck no. that. We're going to wiki it right now. Also, for those who don't know, the Mike V wiki trails are intense. <laughs> 93. No, so there was a movie. Um, no, so when I was a first movie, was pro- I don't remember it in the theater, but it was probably like Return of the Jedi. Okay. Uh, or um, um, Return, yeah, see that. Return of the Jedi, probably, yeah. Okay. Number five, favorite midnight snack? I don't have any. I go to sleep and I'm asleep. You know this. Worst answer ever. Yeah. Midnight snack? Yeah. Dude, when was the last time I was up after 9 p.m.? <laughs> All right, good point. Probably olives. Like, if I'm looking in the refrigerator and it's late at night. Yeah, or like you come home, you're bartending or something, and it's 3 a.m. I go fucking straight to sleep. Um, <laughs> but if I had to, like, if there's a nice can or, like, jar or thing of Kalamata olives, yeah. Okay. Number six. When you eat marshmallow... What is the best way that you eat it, in your opinion? Like, in what form? Straight out of the bag. Palm, finger, hand, mouth. (laughs) Okay. Heaven. Craziest, last one. Number seven. Craziest place you've ever spent the night? At a whorehouse in Arkansas, but that's a different story for a different (laughs) podcast. (laughs) When your wife is not interviewing No, I've told you this. You know the story. (laughs) I do. And a whorehouse in Arkansas. I mean, it was a motel, but it was a whorehouse. And it was in the middle of nowhere. I think you recently told that story to our 11-year-old niece, who was unimpressed. Um, the other craziest place was probably this house in Spokane, who both Scott and I got the same vibe the next day, where we were like, you know, there was an older gentleman there and his younger girlfriend. And kind of like later in the evening, it was like, and by late in the evening, I mean like five in the morning. Um, it was like the four of us, or maybe Jamie was there as well. And... uh the next day, me and Scott were both like, yo, like, that guy was about to ask us to fuck his girlfriend, right? And, like, for him to watch. And, like, it was about to get really weird, right? And we're, it was like, we had left. This is some man's house? Yeah, 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 We played a show in Spokane, and we stayed. Was this the, the guy with the cock ring that you thought was a bracelet? No, that was in uh, St. Louis. Different place. Different place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and um, yeah, we were up till like four or five in the morning and like we were I went to sleep and then those guys went to sleep shortly thereafter. And then the next day I think we were driving to Nampa, Idaho, or Boise, Idaho to play a show. And um Scott and I were like both like kind of agreed that that guy he was on the verge and he was I guess it was a weird. There was a weird vibe and he we both think felt it. we both felt that he was about to be like, hey, if you guys want to fuck my girlfriend while I watch we're totally into that. And that was weird. It was weird. Um, but the whorehouse was probably the weirdest. 
Okay. The whorehouse in Arkansas. That's good. That's good. Yeah. It wasn't okay. a whore. It was a um. It was a Motel Six or a Motel Five, maybe. And there you have it. The people on my floor, featuring me, Mike V. Um, shout out the biggest shout out to Emily, who is uh, did a great job. She was very nervous. Um, but she did an outstanding job running the podcast. She asked some great questions, and I had fun talking to her, as I do every single day. Um, she's my best friend in the world, and I'm surprised that we've never had that long-form conversation before. Um, but it was nice to have. And I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoy the record I have coming out because um, I'm very proud of it, and I'm very happy that it, that it got made and that it exists in the world. Um, so head on over to michaelvm.bandcamp.com to purchase it or um, at a local independent record retailer near you, or if you must, on iTunes. But I'd rather you buy it at a record store or buy it from me. Um, it'll be on Spotify, all that shit, blah, 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 whatever. Here's a song. It's called Oh Susie. Um, you can imagine what it's about. Enjoy. See you next time. Oh, while I see your face and I wish that I could take your place Reality